0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is Christopher Coyne. Chris is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire and the Paths to Peace. Chris,
1: welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Your book is about
0: foreign policy broadly from a perspective of pretty deep skepticism about the wisdom and the ability of having an activist foreign policy at all. I know this isn't your first work on the subject. Can you talk a little bit about how you became interested in foreign policy and this perspective on foreign policy in general?
1: Well, actually, I've been thinking about and researching these issues now for for two decades. And and uh, I, I went to George Mason for my graduate education, and I started in 2001. And so prior to that graduate school, I, I worked uh, in finance down in the Wall Street area. So I would commute from Hoboken, New Jersey, into the World Trade Center towers every day and then walked down to Wall Street. And then I came to George Mason, uh, as I mentioned, in 2001, in my third week in graduate school. My first semester were the 9-11 attacks. And of course, they, they struck the World Trade Center, which I had just come from, and then the Pentagon, which was about 13 miles from, from the Fairfax campus of George Mason University. And soon thereafter, the U.S. government invaded Afghanistan and then soon Iraq. Uh, And I always had a kind of a background interest in foreign policy, but nothing formal in terms of my study. Uh, And I was uh, Tyler Cowens, now my colleague, I was his research assistant when I was a a graduate student. And uh, I was in his office one day and I was just speaking with him and we were talking about how with these occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq, the the language was quite grandiose that we were going to – the U.S. government was going to redesign these countries, export democracy, liberate them, and, and do it at, at basically no cost to the American population. It seemed quite off just in terms of – the consideration of things that I consider to be central to the study of the social sciences, things like epistemics, our ability to to know things, like, well, can you just design a free society from whole cloth? Can an outside force go in and create the foundations of a liberal, democratic, legal, economic, political system? Can a external occupier uh, just do good things, meaning just get the bad people? and provide humanitarian aid to to those in need, and so on down the line. And so Tyler and I wrote an initial paper on this. It turned into my dissertation, uh, which was a collection of papers. And then out of that stemmed my first book, which was on nation building. And then I've been working on this ever since. And so I've I've written books on nation building, humanitarian aid, and then also the domestic effects of um, foreign intervention, things like the militarization of the police uh, at home in America, the surveillance state and so on and so this book is kind of a culmination of, of two decades of thinking about and writing on and studying these issues from a variety of perspectives
0: and your specific academic background as, as a graduate assistant with uh Cowen and what as in economics right
1: yeah my train my training is is as an economist but at George Mason you know we have a very interdisciplinary approach to economics very much yeah and so public choice overlaps lot with political science uh, and, uh, appreciation of institutional economics and sociology and economics. And so it it lends naturally to the study of these type of issues, which many people would consider to be kind of outside the purview of economics narrowly understood.
0: Yeah. Do you want to say a little bit more about that, about how the study of economics helps to understand this, uh, you know, whether you're thinking about constraints in, in knowledge or resources or, or whatever, or the, the incentives that policymakers have. Yeah. Because everyone knows, uh, Economics is about buying food from the grocery store and interest rates. So what are you doing here?
1: You know, you know, you're exactly right. And so the, the way kind of I I frame it, which is very straightforward, but I think quite powerful. And then of course the nuance comes in, in in extending it to different aspects of the issue of foreign policy and foreign intervention. But people act purposefully. That's that's the starting assumption. Uh that is they they're goal oriented. Uh, they are rational from the standpoint that they seek to achieve their goals in the best way known to them. So it's not my, my vision of this is not some kind of hyper rationality where people are robotic or perfect, just the opposite. We are all highly imperfect. And and uh, that that's a crucial aspect of the puzzle. What can imperfect people do and not do? How do they figure things out? And can they figure things out? And that applies to all different contexts. So you have then that framework, and then you can apply it to all different things. So you have purposeful behavior. People respond to incentives. There's, uh, from my perspective, a very important role of subjectivism. That is the way I view costs and benefits are different than you view them, is different than someone in the Middle East views them. And why is this important for our discussion of foreign policy? Well, to the outsider, having a certain form of democratic political institutions or a certain economic system might make perfect sense. But for the people that live under the system or are or, are or, or going to need to live under the system and and who are are having the system imposed on them, they might view those costs and benefits quite differently. and and when there's that wedge between the two views that that's going to lead to difficulties and challenges to put it to put it gently. And uh, uh, so that's just some of the ways. And then, and then of course, the the really novel aspect coming out of kind of the GMU approach to economics is you can't treat government as what James Buchanan once called a fiscal brain, kind of a supercomputer that just does what you want it to do. It it pulls resources in the form of taxes and, and debt and issuing money from domestic life, and then it spits out public goods, either domestically or internationally. But that's the way a lot of social scientists tend to treat government when it comes to public policy in general, and certainly foreign policy. Uh, It's what I've called the defense brain, this kind of view of of the state as providing defense, protection, and good things uh, uh, to both domestic citizens and people abroad. And that's certainly possible. But we also need to have a appreciation that it may not do those things. And when it, it doesn't do those things, it not it's not just that it might fail, but also that it might generate bads or harms. Uh, and so framing it as a kind of public good problem, which is the traditional approach, going back to Paul Samuelson and, and Richard Musgrave in the in the 50s, and the way that many economists talk about the defense and the role of government even now, is that it biases the, the discussion towards the good towards the beneficial aspects while downplaying the potential negative and harmful aspects. And that's one of the things I'm hoping to draw out in this book is, well, okay, certainly good stuff can happen, but bad things can happen too. And so let's talk about those and explore what those might look like.
0: Yeah. And a lot of them are intimately intertwined with each other. I mean, I think you have two chapters as like case studies of obvious bad things that have and can happen in the course of you know, having a very interventionist foreign policy, and uh, we'll talk about those in more detail later, you know, it's possible that you could try to intervene in a foreign country and accidentally or through recklessness, kill a lot of innocent civilians. That I think probably is a necessary effect of intervention, but maybe it's not like a logically necessary effect. But there are other things like just just the fact of having a centralized uh, defense policy means for instance that there is an obvious nerve center for a foreign government to attack. I think this is the case. I should I wish I knew this history better that that was one of the deterrents for Switzerland, Nazi Germany feeling like where where the hell do we get someone to surrender? It's the defense is too decentralized to be worth attacking or like when you're when a foreign power is conquering Societies that are more decentralized and not and there's not like a coherent like capital. It's just this frustrating decades long experience of conquering village by village and household by household.
1: Yeah, and, and and one area where you know that we don't have to think too hard to see this is the U.S. experience in Afghanistan. I mean, you you have you have a you have a national government, but it's extremely weak, so it, it really has very little ability to project its power. But you have a, an insurgency that has no single as you put it quite well, nerve center, no homogeneous kind of structure to it, so it's highly decentralized, very rudimentary, and as as the United States and of course the Soviets prior to that experienced, uh, as you put it, it can it can pull you in for decades, uh, do significant harm. I mean, you look at some of these you know, the uh, improvised explosive devices in, in in Afghanistan and Iraq that the insurgents were using; they were like water bottles filled with nails and you know, explosives, and they go off and they do significant damage to people. And it's so it's not like you need to be spending a trillion dollars a year on a defense budget research and development to to do great harm.
0: So can you say before we get into too many specific parts of the book, do you want to just give a broad outline of the perspective and thesis of this book, you know, in a more succinct way, we've been jumping around a little bit. What's this book about?
1: Yeah. Thank you. If I had to kind of summarize it, I'd say, look, I'm hoping to reconceptualize and to get people think about how we think about the connection between government and specifically the American government, foreign policy, defense, not offense, defense and liberty. And because from a a very young age in, in America, kids are taught that the American government is our protector and it's necessary. And it's not just necessary to protect us, but it's necessary to protect the world, to bring order to the world, making the world safe for democracy, as the famous saying goes. And the the emphasis, as I mentioned earlier, tends to be on on the good parts of that project, the project of bringing order to the world, which, of course, assumes that a central entity can bring order to the world. And that's anything absent that is chaotic and, and anarchical. And we can talk more about that later on. But the the issue uh, uh, is once you start unpacking that, it's unclear all those assumptions that are typically implicit are actually held up to scrutiny about what would be required for government to do this. And then on top of it, what I want people to to think about, hopefully, is how the idea of a liberal empire, because that's how people often talk about America to the extent they're willing to call it an empire. I think it is. But um, if not, that's okay. It's certain we can still agree on the largesse of it. But the word liberal here is, is connected with liberalism, which is from the Latin liber, right, for for free or freedom. And it's the philosophy of individual freedom and then what that means and, and the various aspects of that in life. And so the type of things that liberalism as a political philosophy tend to emphasize are things like indi- individual freedom and dignity, uh, intellectual humility, uh, an appreciation for voluntary choice and association and self-determination freedom of expression, toleration and pluralism, the importance of spontaneous orders. And each of these things is fundamentally at odds with a centralized, top-down empire-type structure. And so one of the things I I want people hopefully to think about, whether they agree or disagree, when they read the book, is how the, the notion of a liberal empire is a misnomer, but the very operations of empire actually undermine the very things that define liberalism. And that's counterintuitive, I think, to most people, because they view it as a liberal empire is necessary for a liberal world. Uh, But what if carrying out those very activities undermines the the principles you seek to uphold? And that's kind of the running theme throughout. And so each chapter ends with kind of the bads of empire. It's a list of the various uh, kind of potential harms and nefarious aspects of empire. And I'm trying to emphasize to the reader that well, as you go through kind of this balancing of the benefit side, you really need to take account of these costs. And then it really comes down to how confident you are in the apparatus generating net benefits or net costs. And that's, of course, an open question and one where there's a lot of disagreement and and contestation among intellectuals.
0: So you mentioned this a little, when you talk about liberal empire, liberal is in the broader sense of like the broader Western political tradition, the the Enlightenment tradition. We're not talking about the contrast between like republicans and democrats why did you decide to use the term imperialism is that is that a controversial decision i'm i'm fine with it but what other terms might you have used or what terms do you think the proponents of this kind of policy would self-apply
1: i think proponents of this policy and the interesting thing and you know it's written for a very broad audience but one of my targets are those that that find themselves, and, and I realize there's a lot of nuance in ideology, so I'm I'm, I'm being too simplistic, but those on the right or right-leaning who, on, on the contemporary ideological spectrum in America I'm talking about, who have some notion of kind of a limited government, but their notion of limited government includes... Uh, national defense. And so even the most limited government people, James Buchanan, Milton Friedman, F.A. Hayek, they would say things like, well, we just need a limited state. And that limited state is kind of like an umpire, a referee. That's kind of the analogy they often draw. And they'll say they just need to provide defense, contracts, police. And it's like, okay, but again, that's assuming a lot of stuff from that. I, I think very quickly you realize it's not limited. But once you start unpacking what each of those various functions actually entails, it's quite expansive in practice. But Imperialism implies using the the apparatus of government to impose things upon people. it's It's imperialistic from that perspective. And so I think proponents, I don't know if they'd embrace the term or find it offensive uh, or unsatisfactory. I imagine they'd say something like we're bringing order to the world. And so their view oftentimes is we their their starting assumption is something like a Hobbesian jungle. So the Hobbesian jungle is, you know, life is nasty, brutish and short absent some kind of exogenous force to bring order. And that exogenous force is leviathan, what we call government. And the government's job is to bring order to to chaos. Uh, and so if you adopt that mental scheme as your starting point, then you don't view the, the government's activity as imperialistic or bad necessarily. You view it as the source of order and the only source of order. Absent that, we're all fighting each other physically and killing each other. Um, and so if, if you have that starting point, you can see why you why you naturally adopt the framework. I don't think the world has to be like that, by the way. And so I come at it from a slightly different perspective.
0: And to be fair, I think that some of the more prominent, like neoconservative thinkers do occasionally lean into the term empire. I mean, maybe with a little bit of self-deprecation, but you you know, you see articles by these people with titles like, you know, it's time for America to re-embrace its imperial role in the world or something like that.
1: Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, if you have you have historians like Neil Ferguson who who say, look, look, America's an empire. Let's just it's it's an empire, it's the greatest place in the world, and we should be proud of it. And the world needs us. And 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 absent us, the world will be not just chaotic, but other hegemons will take over, they'll be much worse. And so from that perspective, you know, we should embrace and failing to embrace that that notion of empire in his telling is problematic because then we don't put the resources and effort and kind of centralized direction behind it to make it successful. And so that's certainly another perspective as well. And um, hopefully those, the the people that have that position will at least, you know, take into account some of the points I raise. I I imagine ultimately they'll they'll disagree with the overall implications of the analysis, but hopefully they'll appreciate some of the points that are raised.
0: You review a lot of reasons in the book, compelling reasons to think that uh, liberal imperialism will not work out as advertised and will have a lot of unintended consequences and all in all that it's a bad plan. But can you address the the objection you just you just raised to your own position? what's your response to the idea that maybe it's it's not going to work out great, but if we pull back, someone else will fill that role and it's going to be Russia or China and they're not going to be nearly so gentle and kind as obviously the United States has been exceedingly gentle and kind in its interventions but just that the alternative would be worse what's what's your response to that
1: so first of all notice and 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 you hinted at this at the end you know uh, correctly so that in some sense it is that the way people set this up this this comparison is always and and i mean i do mean that well almost always as america good everyone else bad and in some sense you've already stacked the deck in your favor by doing that and so the american government is the force of good it's the, the the city on the hill you know, the shining light, evil out there. And once you frame it in those terms, it, it's an unfair comparison. And and, um, and so here's here's how I respond to that. I do not deny, and I don't think you can deny, that the alternative would be worse. But the way that liberals, and other people, by the way, from from other aspects, not just liberals, respond to that in other areas of life, is not to just give up the game. Like, we don't say things like, markets are good for the delivery of shoes. But we don't know what the alternative might look like, right? We have some examples throughout history where it's tried, but we can imagine lots of different things with partnerships between government and private firms. We don't say like, oh, the alternative might be be worse, so we shouldn't try it. We have a track record of governments intervening around the world. We have that track record of all governments. We have a, a track record of what happens when you ramp up militarily, which is other countries ramp up militarily. And that's what I think is also overlooked. It's not necessarily the case that the United States pulled back. China and Russia would just take over the world. They might expand their foreign policy ambitions compared to what they are today. But there's nothing to say that someone has to rule the entire world or can rule the entire world. And, and what that means, or, or to frame it slightly differently, is that you know there's something in international relations. It's like international relations 101. It's called the security dilemma. Which is when I make moves, me being a representative government, make moves to make myself safer by investing in defense, it makes countries, other countries less safe or feel less safe because I have weapons and they don't. And so I'm stronger than them. And the security dilemma is that in attempting to accumulate weapons to make myself stronger and protect myself, it incentivizes other people to do that. This is the kind of logic behind the arms race you get a kind of a spiraling effect. And that is what drives, in many cases, militarism. That's what drives the appearance that the world is is one where force is the only way of answering it. But that, in that case, is not some kind of exogenous pre-existing condition of the world. It is a response to previous activities, which is that when I look at the world and I see all this weaponry and threats, it's because of previous actions. And those previous actions, in many cases, incentivized and necessitated, in some cases, the need for other people to also act aggressively, to counter my, my me being representative government A, my aggressive behavior. Uh, and to the extent that's true, then perhaps the alternative would be better. Uh, perhaps the alternative would be one where we didn't rely on force. Or the threat of force is the primary means of interacting with people. Uh, and what would that world look like? I don't know. I I, I know there'd certainly be conflict still. There's conflict. Uh, we can never get rid of conflict. It's how we deal with conflict. And the ways you can deal with conflict are violence or the threat thereof or through talking to people. And when you elevate force or the threat thereof, that necessarily minimizes talking to people. And that has a, a set of ripple effects. And so again the my my response to the, to the people that say what about the alternative I say certainly it, there certainly could be other people that fill the gap but maybe not and how do you know the alternative wouldn't be better why do we assume that the status quo is the only way things can be and have to be i think you know one of the the big downsides of the of the onset of the russia invasion of ukraine uh, in addition of course to just the horribleness of war itself is that it shut the window very quickly on the critical reflection of the Afghanistan experience. And so Afghanistan, decades of deceit and failure and dysfunction on the part of the U.S. government, the Biden administration finally extracts the United States, even though there's still U.S. influence and troops there, but officially extracts the, the United States in a chaotic manner, of course. And there was a real opportunity there for kind of reflection to say like, okay, what's going on? Should we really be doing this stuff? And then, of course, uh, uh, Russia invades Ukraine. Not long thereafter, it's like, well, now we got to ramp back up. We have to increase military budgets. We see the world needs us, because without us, the world is chaotic. Uh, pushing aside just decades of 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 the opposite of of evidence to the contrary. That's kind of where we stand. And, and you know, I, the the broader one, one final thing on this: in complex systems in general, which of which the world is is you know, numerous overlapping complex system, we can never predict with certainty. That goes for the economy, that goes for the international space. And so I'm okay and comfortable <laughs> saying I don't know to a lot of things. And I think that's important to do. But no one else knows either. They pretend they know, but they don't know. And if you if you think I'm exaggerating this, just go look at the experts talking about Ukraine and Russia over the course of that conflict. And
0: and previously.
1: Well, yeah, of course. But, but even if we just limit it to A year. Just go look. And it's it's really hard to predict these things because there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things out of our control.
0: Yeah, well, one of the people who influenced my views on foreign policy, even though he doesn't write about it in in empirical detail, is Brian Kaplan, your colleague, and his short case for pacifism. And he relies just to, to a little bit on the work of Philip Tetlock and in that argument in demonstrating just how ignorant experts are in their ability to predict the future, predict future political events. You know, people, uh, policymakers and pundits and journalists and everyone talk very confidently as if they know what's going to happen. And occasionally they're right, but They usually hedge their predictions and don't go back and talk about the times they were wrong. You know, they'll talk loudly about whenever they were right. So I think that the moral burden of when it's okay to engage in uh, foreign adventurism and almost certainly recklessly endanger or kill innocent people in the process uh, has to be a little bit higher than the alternative might be bad. Maybe it would be worse but you really don't know that and it's usually not acceptable to do things that you know will cause severe death and destruction because you know you think there's a decent chance the alternative would be worse you know you better be pretty confident and the and the benefits better be pretty disproportionately big is i think my perspective there i also wanted to comment on the security dilemma that you mentioned cuz you have a nice part at the end of the book talking about alternatives to centralized defense and the security dilemma. I know John Mearsheimer is always fond of pointing out, you know, that no one's managed to invent a defensive gun, you know, it turns out that these bullets can be pointed in any direction. So, yeah, if I if I build up my defenses, I'm just being defensive, but from your perspective, which is what matters in determining what you do, I'm being potentially offensive or increasing my ability to attack you. So, that is a real dilemma, but it's not impossible and people in their private lives do this all the time. It's not impossible to increase your ability to defend yourself in ways that minimize the appearance or reality of increasing your ability to be aggressive as well. You know, putting locks on your door, for instance, as opposed to arming yourself to the teeth. Not that arming yourself is not a legitimate uh, source either, but I think the idea of decentralized defense and those kinds of things are a perfect example of a form of setting yourself up for defense that don't look as assertive or aggressive to neighboring powers, the Swiss model and things like that, or decentralized defense options. Why do you think liberal imperialism is so bipartisan in America?
1: You know, the interesting thing is, I'm not sure it is bipartisan. Um, I, I, I. Okay. You know, I, I, what, what I mean by that is, I, you know, it's interesting when there's for all the disagreements in the United States politically. Certainly, since I would say, perhaps even further goes back, but let's just start at the the World Wars. There's been very strong support in government in the American government for the U.S. military and then and, and the central role of the U.S. military in world affairs. Obviously, the the two World Wars, and you come right out of that in the Cold War. Now look, there was anti-war movements and that's one of the fascinating things I think in in American now this is among the polity now it's not so much in in Washington DC proper but you know Vietnam you have a a pretty strong anti-war movement sentiment and of course you know historians have written on how going back to the the founding of America there was a very strong se- uh, segment in, in in America a, a concern about um, military overreach and, and an anti what today we call anti-military type sentiment but George W. Bush is president. You get the invasions at following 9-11. Outside the White House, there were anti-war protesters almost every day. Barack Obama gets elected. It, it disappears almost overnight, the anti-war movement. You know, of course, he won. He wins the Nobel Peace Prize, as far as I can tell, for not being named George W. Bush. I mean, he's,
0: Preemptively. Yeah, I mean, it was- It was a preemptive strike.
1: Yeah, right. Anyway, I, I don't want to get off on that, but the the kind of pushback from the population in general- kind of went away in any kind of organized way. And it's it's been gone ever since. And if you you know look at polls, public opinion polls, the, the military is the most trusted institution among members of the U.S. population. Um, and so it goes something like, you know, Congress is terrible, actually, in those ratings. Supreme Court, it was it was higher, but I don't know about now.
0: How do intelligence agencies do in general?
1: I, they don't ask on intelligence agencies, I don't think. <laughs> I, I, that, that would be interesting. But but members of the U.S. – I mean the U.S. military is is one of the line items usually, and, and they do quite well. And I get it. There's the patriotism aspect and, and otherwise. But I think the kind of blind adherence – and you even see this with Ukraine and Russia. Like in intellectual discussions, if you try to even raise questions about what the United States is doing in Ukraine – not even like taking a position like the US government should or should not do this. Like, what do you think about the unintended consequences or should the US government be involved over there? You know, in terms of uh, let's think through the logistics of it. You, it's almost like this how dare you say that or, you know, Putin, you think Putin's justified or good or apologist. It's like, well, no, not necessarily the, the intellectual critical exercise. It's not just ivory tower exercise. If you truly believe that a patriot, is someone, and a self-governing citizen, is someone that is critical of their government, irregardless of their political affiliation or the action they're taking, and you're critical because you realize that part of the burden on you as a citizen is to be critical, then having this kind of blind adherence to the military is bad. Not just from the standpoint of, of the government, but also from members of the military. I mean, these are human beings that are sent into harm's way. You think, going back to what you were saying a moment ago, that we'd want a, a quite a high standard, not just because we can harm innocent people abroad, but for all the talk of of protecting the soldiers and troops and not putting them in harm's way, it seems people in Washington, D.C. are quite comfortable putting them in harm's way, and that a a, a seriously critical perspective with a very high bar would be one way to prevent that. In Congress itself, you know, it's very hard to find pushback on u.s military interventions again you hear it here and there it's usually very light it doesn't have any kind of strong force you go back and look at uh, after 9-11 go look at things like the patriot act the authorization for the use of force and maybe you can find one or two people that voiced any kind of pushback in congress but most people are like nope we got to give the president the power you know we got to give military and the, and the national security state power to protect us and it's once you're in that situation it's kind of game over
0: It's tough to watch. I remember going through the lead up to the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq and that that atmosphere being in the air as well, like there was just such this consensus around or alleged consensus or elite consensus that the, you know, the proper opinions to have is to be in favor of the invasion and in favor of the war on terror. Yeah, you didn't want to be caught spewing pro Saddam talking points. And that's like the phrase that gets used a lot today. You know, Putin apologists, pro Russia talking points, pro Putin talking points. And over the course of the war on terror, you're right. When Obama was elected, I think it defanged a lot of the anti-war movement because a lot of them were on the left, not all of them. And uh, they were happy enough to have George W. Bush out of the White House. That was disappointing for me personally, because my political evolution, I was pretty enamored with some of the neocon perspectives early on, you know, I was a teenager, and and I got disillusioned pretty quickly and started to move away from that. And I was so disappointed to see like the energy of the criticism of the war just evaporate. I remember Keith Olbermann, who I'm not really a fan of, but he used to have like really poignant anti-war speeches and like, Anti-Patriot Act and just critical of the security state when George W. Bush was president. And then he just turned into a cheerleader after that. It was kind of sad to watch. But even though the maybe like the energy of that movement went away, it wasn't like it was difficult at, at a certain point. It wasn't difficult or controversial to oppose, you know, the interventions or anything like that. Everyone just kind of didn't care anymore. And now it's all back. And it, I, I guess that's just always the case with a new with a new foreign intervention. It's like, the epitome of America, love it or leave it. And everyone gets on board.
1: I think that's right. I think that's part of the reason why it's important to have the kind of message of, of, alternatives. There, there's another way to think about these issues and frame these issues. And that's one of the things I try to in this book, but elsewhere, just to raise the possibility, like it doesn't have to be this way. Um, it, it is that way. I understand. I understand the cycle, but it doesn't have to be. And you know, the, the other thing is, and, and you're exactly right. Uh, one of the things I hope with this book, and again, I, I, I'm sure the people that hold very strong opinions will find much to disagree with. But hopefully, intellectually, they can find some conversation points or things to to at least critically think about it, their own, own positions. But anti-war sentiments, certainly in the post-World War II period. Again, there there was a, a streak in the Republican Party, Robert Taft and all that, the, the old right, yeah. that were, were, were more skeptical of foreign intervention. But it typically is associated with the left. And if you read discussions of imperialism, it's typically coming from left-leaning intellectuals and scholars. They, and, and one of the problems is for, with that perspective from the those who, who hold views similar I have or even those who are more conservative is that I think they give up the game. They give up the game because those on the left associate imperialism with capitalism, and they'll say things like, "See, you know, the reason that America and other Western governments use the military force is because of cap." And this goes back, of course, to Lenin. Yeah, with with, with capitalism as the you know imperialism is the last stage of capitalism, kind of stuff that that you're trying to take over foreign lands and foreign markets and exploit the poor, and to in some sense they have a good argument from the standpoint. That historically, very large, well-connected private interests have influenced the American government to intervene abroad. I mean, you know, you don't have to go that 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 far back in history to see that. And but that, to my way of thinking, that is not anything inherent in capitalism. It's political capitalism, uh, and it's it's the fact that there is this military tool that is sitting there and is constantly not just sitting there idle. It's actually cultivated and developed because we need it. And then, of course, like any other government program, but this one on an enormous scale, when you entangle private and public interests, it's going to get used for narrow opportunism. And one of the areas where I think the 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 more right leaning people uh, on the ideological spectrum in America have an issue is that they they're very critical of domestic government programs. So you know, you ask them about education, you ask them about. Healthcare and Obamacare. And they'll be like, that's terrible. It's state planning. It's top down control. Sometimes people throw around the word socialism, even though I think that's the inappropriate application of the technical definition of it. But, and then all of those things are not just in existence when it comes to matters of the military state or or the military sector, but they are magnified. They are magnified uh, on a scale that is enormous. So all of the things that people kind of find obnoxious and repugnant about domestic government programs are ramped up full full tilt when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, And for the same reason, people are skeptical about domestic government top-down planning when it comes to government programs. Perhaps that should give them pause when it comes to going abroad and trying to do the same things. Uh, And if not, by the way, if they're so confident in in the American government's job to do that, then they're they they should not be arguing against government domestically. They should be arguing for a reorganization of government, to to import the military means of organization domestically. I mean, if government's so great at setting up all this stuff uh abroad, uh then the argument can't be that government's bad. It's the form of government that's bad domestically. And that's a very different argument. And so, you know, one of the interesting things I found now talking about these issues for for decades is that the the, the the most difficult audiences I tend to talk in front of are, are more conservative leaning audiences. Where if I was talking about entrepreneurship, or markets, or economic freedom, we'd be on the same page. But I start talking about foreign policy and they get quite quite bothered by by the arguments I'm laying out. And I think that's an interesting tension. And then even on the left, they have issues too because as I mentioned, a lot of policymakers they're on board with the military uh, kind of uh, imperialistic mindset as well. But, you know, domestically, they tend to be quite concerned with corporate power and corporations influencing government. And again, you start looking abroad and unpacking these things and you realize it's all that stuff going on uh, uh, just at a bigger scale and in a different space. And so there's I think I view these kind of as inroads to have these conversations and to point out these tensions with people from across the ideological spectrum.
0: Yeah, there's there's also. A lot of bipartisanship across ideological interest in in anti imperialism as well. I mean, like you said, it's 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 an obvious topic of agreement for libertarians and socialists to be say very critical of the military industrial complex and Raytheon and all these kinds of companies. Like, yeah, of course they're of course they are rent seeking and milking the taxpayer and the common man out of all their money so that they can build billion dollar missiles and things like that. Can you talk more about the relationship between imperialism and crony capitalism and con- corruption? Like maybe maybe imperialism isn't the highest stage of capitalism, but is it the highest stage of crony capitalism?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's part it's part of it. I mean, c- political capitalism, the way I think about it, and, and for anyone listening who's interested, Randy Holcomb, who's a, a public choice economist at Florida State, he has a wonderful book in, I think it's 2018, called Political Capitalism. And so anyone interested in learning more about the intellectual aspects of this, I, I point them to that. But political capitalism is a it's a system. It's not just like a, a a few entanglements. It's actually an entrenched entrenched system whereby decisions come to be made not by markets and not purely in politics, but by the entanglement between these two. And so you have a group of elites and those elites have a privileged position in society. And those elites are a mix of people sitting in Washington, D.C., in the case of, of the security state, since it occurs at the national level, and those that are have access to those people in the private sector. And that's a small group. Ordinary voters, an ordinary person doesn't have that kind of access. They're not part of the elite in this framework because they aren't the decision makers themselves and they can't just pick up a phone and call someone and get them on the phone, the, the people that get to make the decisions. And the elite can. And so it's a very tight network. And that network is able to be insulated from both political pressures, meaning that ordinary people, ordinary voters have a very hard time disentangling and understanding and punishing those people through the voting booth and through market forces, because they remove themselves from market forces by relying on politics. Uh, And of course, the military sector is, as I call it in the book, peak crony capitalism. It is the it is the Best example of crony capitalism you can get because it is a public-private partnership. The government funds military production and buys it. On the out- so they fund it on the front end, and then they're the purchaser of it. In other words, you know, private citizens can't buy an F-35 fighter jet. Governments are the only buyers of it.
0: Yeah. How many of these companies have—do they have any customers besides— like the Defense Department,
1: sure, sure. So some of them, some of them are what's called they they produce. Uh, they're engaged in dual dual use production, and so like Boeing, you know, they produce yeah. private aircraft and public. And so some of them are mixed, some aren't, and and it depends on it. Um, but a lot of them, if you look like at the top, you know, it's really interesting to look at this sector. If you look at like the top military contractors, if you look at the Fortune 500, so the top private companies, there's constant churn, there's turnover because c- companies that were the most profitable in 1945 are not the most profitable because of innovation market, market forces push push people out, bring new people in. If you look at the top military contractors since like World War II, the same people that have been in the top 10 are in the top 10. And those that aren't got acquired by one of the others.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, they're, they're all merging and stuff. And yep. Lockheed Martin.
1: You don't get the kind of churn and in innovation that you do in competitive markets. And, and in some sense, you know, proponents would say, well, that's the very point. We don't want market competition. OK, but that has real economic welfare consequences, which we just need basic economics to understand what happens when you turn to politics to run markets. The problem is, in the in, in the realm of political capitalism, that the assumption is that those entanglements will only be used for good. So again, kind of in the model that most people have is like, you need government to provide defense because other private people can't provide sufficient defense. That's the normal public good argument. So the state has to do it. The state is going to partner with military firms and contractors to produce that public good, and they're going to do it. And then kind of the analysis stops. But what happens when we apply economics to each stage, each step of this? What what do we expect the bureaucracies and government to operate? How do we expect firms to operate when they can get their revenues from government? Do we expect them to act in the public good, or do we expect them to feather their own nests at the expense of taxpayers to concentrate benefits on themselves and disperse costs on the taxpayers. Where's the accountability? Again, in a private firm, there's accountability. The ultimate accountability, of course, is your balance sheet, um, which is you can do things that are kind of wasteful and uh, even opportunistic, but when push comes to shove, there's a balance sheet, there's profit and loss accounting that is generated through markets. And there's no analogous mechanism in the military sector. So what happens is uh, you get creep. That's how government operates when it entangles with private firms. You get creep, which is you get growth and expansion. It doesn't just stay doing what you originally wanted it to do because government bureaus expand by doing what? Getting a bigger budget, getting more subordinates, doing more stuff. That's That's the defining feature of a successful bureau. No bureau succeeds by getting smaller. Then how do firms get bigger? By earning a profit. So where do they get the profit from? Well, if their main client is government, they get profit from government. And so that's the underlying dynamics of this. And it becomes entrenched. And again, people have to understand the magnitude of this. And and so go, I, I urge them, I talk about this in the book, but referring to the functions of government related to the military is limited, is absurd. Because once you start unpacking all of the things that the government does in the name of of defense, you realize it reaches into every area of life. So you go look at the top 200 military contractors. So there's those ones at the top we talked about, but when you run this massive bureaucratic apparatus, you need technology support. So there's technology firms, you need healthcare firms, you need paper supply companies, office supplies, all of these different firms that we normally wouldn't think about as being part of the military sector become entangled in the military sector. The Pentagon is the largest employer in America. Actually, I think maybe the world. Walmart's the largest private employer. So think about what that does to labor markets. So you get massive distortions, which again we would feel comfortable talking about in 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 the realm of any other government program. You know, when we talk about welfare programs and we critique them, we talk about defendanc- dependency effects and people becoming reliant on welfare and the distortionary effects on markets. When we talk about price controls and subsidies, we talk about all the distortionary effects on markets. It's what economists oftentimes focus on. Uh, And of course, then those on the left talk about private privilege and how they get those kind of subsidies and handouts from government. But when it comes to the military sector, except for you get these, as you were pointing earlier, kind of these segments on the left, sometimes segments on the right, but mainly these segments on the left, oftentimes the, the more far left leaning people ideologically, you don't talk about these things, but they exist. And so that's the nature of political economy. As as Kenneth Balding, an economist, put it, the military sector is, an, is a cancer on the American economy. And I think that's right. I think it, it, it doesn't create wealth. It sucks away and redirects and destroys resources in the name of providing a public good. And to the extent that's necessary is open for debate. But... I think it's important to recognize that feature of the entity itself. And that's what it is. It is it is, it is a parasite on the private economy because it can't produce resources absent that. It needs to extract them from the private sector.
0: Do you think the idea of the revolving door between high-level officials and CEOs in these defense companies and the Pentagon itself and intelligence agencies, is that just a form of regulatory capture? Is it analogous to that? And is, is it worse than in other sectors of the economy where this happens?
1: I think it is an inherent feature of the system. That's the first step. So, so so pointing this out, I think is not, you know, a lot of people tend, well, that's kind of conspiratorial. It's it's the feature of it. And and so you think about the sectors where re, the revolving door which refers to the back and forth movement between the public sector and the private sector. Where do those things exist? Oftentimes in the most heavily regulated industries, so the defense sector, the banking industry, healthcare, and you think about it and you understand why it exists. If you are going to have someone in in the Department of Defense who knows, you know, you want them to come in and oversee the aspect of operations that deals with contracting with private firms, then someone who has experience in the military sector, in the private sector, is going to have a good resume for that. So you can understand logically why there's no nefarious motivation here. They're going to have a very good resume for understanding that. And then if you're a private contractor and you say, well, I need government contracts. Well, who has a really good resume when it comes to getting an understanding, the defense acquisition acquisition system, which is a nightmare. If anyone wants to see an example of bureaucracy, go look up the organizational chart for the defense acquisition in the United States. By the way, there's something called Defense Acquisition University. You have to go to school to learn all the, it's like a 1200 page guide just for the acquisition. But in any case, (laughs) it's going to be someone that experienced that. And they'll get hired. And so you get this back and forth. The problem is the capture point you just pointed out, which is that they are, whether they act nefariously or not, so they don't have to be nefariously motivated. they, They know people just like we all do in walks of life. We have networks and we become friends with people. And there's going to be a tendency to privilege the people you know, the people that you're friendly with and you have relations with just in any other walk of life. We all rely on our networks to accomplish things professionally and personally, and so it's no different. The problem is is that remember that this overarching massive apparatus is supposed to be operating for the public good. It's supposed to be looking out for the little person and defending them. And again, you start looking at this stuff and you realize very little of what they do actually matters for defending the, the every person in America. Much of it is simply moving lots of resources around, lining the pockets of some people at the expense of others. Uh, and, and, and that's the nature of the beast. Uh, now, some people argue that the revolving door is a good thing because they say, no, you want the experts in there. You want the people that know a lot about acquisitions being in there. That would, would be silly not to have someone in there. It's
0: a conspiracy to suggest that's happening. And also, that's the only way to do it anyway. So don't bring it up.
1: And, and that might be the case. Again, you, you certainly want people in there. But that that assumes that those people are doing exactly what you want them to do on the output side. It's unclear that's the case once you look at how this, this operates.
0: Yeah, I think if you're on board with the goal, that's absolutely right. I I don't see that there would be another way to do it. You're always going to be searching for the experts and the people best suited to do the job you're giving them. You're calling into question the job itself, so so am I. But if you are totally on board with this liberal imperialist project, of course you're going to want people with the best Rolodexes and experience and all these things, and so the revolving door... Make sense in that in that way. Can you talk about you know you're an economist? Economists often point out, very famously, Ludwig von Mises pointed out that in, interventions into the economy often set the stage for the need for future interventions. You put a price ceiling on something, and you end up with shortages. So you have to maybe subsidize the production of whatever the price ceiling, you know, and so on, and it keeps going like that. And military intervention can often be like that as well. Maybe it's not. Analytically, quite as easy to spell out, but just historically, can you maybe talk about some examples of that? How does how does imperial uh, action on the part of the United States, for instance, often set the groundwork for the need for future action?
1: Yeah, well, there's there's many examples of this. Some of them, you know, and just linking it back to the book. In the first chapter of the book, I, I I provide a very broad overview. Of course, there's very deep histories on each of these er, uh, kind of these periods. But I talk about the different phases of of uh the American Empire. And you know, one of the areas where you really see this is in Latin America, uh and which is kind of in phase two of, of the empire of the empire when the, the, the uh, of the American Empire, its evolution when when America moved outside its border. So phase one's kind of westward expansion. Phase two is when the United States starts to move um south of the border. And really, it's, it's, it's the Spanish-American War in 1898 that I, I kind of use as the marker of where that phase starts. And then, of course, in 1904, under um, Roosevelt, you get the Roosevelt Correlator to the, to the Monroe Doctrine, which says that um, the U.S. government is going to serve as the protectorate of the Western Hemisphere. But you also get these interventions in all these countries uh, in order to get basically client states, Governments that are sympathetic to the American government and their business interests, by the way, linking this back to what you and I were just talking about a moment ago. And this has led to constant churn in many of these countries where you get constant turnover and violence for a variety of reasons. Number one, the governments where the U.S. government either imposed or helped prop up are not viewed as legitimate by forces inside the country. So there's a a, a conflict there. But on top of it, when you have external intervention as the means of political change, that becomes kind of the way you get change is violence. Uh, Walter Lefebvre, a a historian who I talk about a little bit in the book, he called this inevitable revolutions. And so he talks about how the U.S. government has contributed to these inevitable revolutions in countries south of of America, uh, uh, south of the American border by constant intervention, um, both as a tool for the American government to get the outcomes they want, but also to um, for the people internally to push back. And so kind of violence and revolution becomes the, the political norm rather than coordinating on alternatives. And this goes back to where we started with alternatives. People always say, what's the alternative to the US government doing it? I don't know, but I do know that when the US government intervenes in countries, it has this series of ripple effects. And oftentimes that leads to the elevation of violence and force as a means of resolving political, social, and economic disputes. Now, the other kind of example of this I would point to is you can point to Afghanistan. And the United States has been meddling in Afghanistan uh, for long periods of time. Uh, And you go back, you know, let's just start at the kind of Soviet-Afghan war, so late 70s. And um, that was an opportunity for the U.S. government to carry out a proxy war against the Soviet Union uh, using people on the ground in Afghanistan. And so what you had is the funneling of weapons and funds through Pakistan into Afghanistan. At the time, of course, they were called freedom fighters by American policymakers. Uh, but of course, what happens after the Soviets are driven out? The United States government loses interest. They step away. That's the power vacuum that leads ultimately to the rise of to the Taliban uh, and Everything else, of course, is history. detailed history, but it's history. And we know we know what happened then. And so that's the other kind of instance uh, or an example of how you can never do one thing. And again, this is just a lesson from complex systems in general. A complex system uh, is one where there are lots of elements that are interacting, and those elements generate some outcomes which can't be predicted known or controlled. So the economy is a complex system. Uh, social life is a complex system. International relations is a complex system. And the very idea that someone or some government can bring order to that is a misnomer. It's a recipe for disaster. Uh, because in complex systems, order cannot be imposed. And when you try to impose order, it leads to dysfunction. And then it's just a matter of the, the magnitude of this that dysfunction. Uh, and, and that, again, is why you know, the earlier challenge you laid out at the beginning for me is, well, how what about the alternative? The the proponents of empire and a proactive foreign policy can never lay out the alternative either. What they can do and what they do do is cherry pick certain examples of good stuff happening that support their case. And they'll say, see, if we hadn't done this, this wouldn't have happened. But that's not the right way to think about it. (laughs) The right way to think about it is, number one, to consider the entire portfolio of interventions and then to weigh them all, but also to say, even if I could understand that entire portfolio of interventions and pass some kind of judgment, in a complex system, the past is not a predictor of the future. Uh, uh, It it says nothing about what you can accomplish in a different context and a different set of settings. And then it comes down to how confident are you in the government in, in this massive apparatus and all the other factors, because one thing we haven't talked about, of course, We focused a lot on the domestic uh, polity and and both the the government and the citizens. But when you move into international relations, all of the things like special interest groups, bureaucracy, all of those things are ramped up because there's international aspects that are at play as well. So it's not just domestic interest groups. It's foreign interest groups. It's not just domestic governments. It's foreign governments. And all of these pressures are going to push down on the formation and implementation of policy. And that's why I was saying earlier, all the things that people point to domestically as limitations on policy are ramped up multiples in the international space because all the same factors exist. They just exist on a much bigger scale.
0: You were mentioning the US meddling in Afghanistan and how we helped lay the groundwork in some ways for the rise of the Taliban. And also, of course, funding and trading a lot of the people who ended up making up Al-Qaeda. So it plays into the Iraq invasion as well. You mentioned your former uh, advisor and current colleague Tyler Cowen earlier. He wrote a nice review of your book, but mentioned that he's he's not a non-interventionist. What do you think your disagreements or his disagreements are with you, and what might you say about those?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great point. I mean, you know, Tyler is a good colleague and a good friend. I, I again, I've known him. Since graduate school, I was his research assistant. He was on my dissertation committee. And as I mentioned, my dissertation was on nation building. And even then, you know, the great thing about Tyler in my experience is when he disagrees, he disagrees in a very professional, intellectual way. So it's never a personal thing. It's like, well, here are some points. And, and, and his view is some of the things we've talked about. His view is that, look, if the U.S. government didn't do these things, um, the world would be a worse place. It would be a worse place because of the benefits that's generated for certain people. And certainly it has generated benefits. And uh he fears that other governments would kind of do more harm if the U.S. government wasn't there to push back. And part of that is both their physical pushback that exists, like funneling arms to Ukraine to push back on Russia, for instance. You know, I haven't talked to Tyler about that per se, but that's an example, I think. But also the possibility of of the u.s intervening so you know you point to something like china and taiwan and and the idea that the u.s government might intervene to defend taiwan even though they've adopted a one china policy at least rhetorically is enough to perhaps deter china from doing that and so i think that's what he would say and so tyler in my conversations with him and and, you know. Please take this as my summary of his views. I don't want to speak on his behalf, and I, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing it. He's not like a big empire guy that the U.S. government has to be in every corner of the world, but he's also not as much of a non-interventionist as as I am. You know, he's always been quite supportive of me and open to the, the to the arguments I want to make. Um, but uh, he's also let me know that that he believes certainly in more intervention than I do. What what the exact magnitude is, I'm not I'm not quite sure.
0: Well, it seems like he's recruited a lot of uh, interesting and bright people at George Mason that he disagrees with in a lot of ways. And and like you said, always professionally and respectfully, I, I like hearing him argue with his colleagues. So I wanted to hear what you had to say about that. Would do you have any recommendations for books or articles or authors that you think would complement this work particularly well?
1: Yeah, a, an economist who had a huge influence on me, He he's retired now. He lives down in Louisiana, is an economic historian by the name of Robert Hicks. And he did wonderful work throughout his career on what what he's most well-known for is a book published in 1987 called Crisis on Leviathan.
0: That's how I know him.
1: Yep, uh, it's on um, government growth during times of crisis. And so if, if people have heard of the Ratchet Effect, the idea that during times of crisis, government increases in size. Um, and then post-crisis, it declines, but never back to its original trend line. Part of that is because of resource expenditures and new bureaus, but part of it's ideological. That is, people become used to certain new government powers. So think about post-9-11. You know, if you if you were born, you know, like myself, I can remember air support security pre-9-11, how it was and what it looked like. My kids who are three and 10 respectively, they'll never know free 9-11 airport security other than in history books or when I tell them about it. And, and so for them, it's normalized. It's a normalized part of life where if people had done those same things prior to 9-11, members of airport security, it would be a criminal act. They would be arrested for doing it. I'm talking the Pat Down and searches and all that. Sure, sure. So Higgs is great with that. But also after that book, he wrote several books on the uh, warfare state. And he offers a series of of wonderful insights, what I think are wonderful insights and arguments for understanding the nature of the warfare state. So Robert Higgs, Andrew Bacevich, who's a a historian, he's written, uh, you know, he's he's like a machine. He seems to write like a book a a year. I don't know how he does it, but they're all I, I find many of them insightful. And he is very critical of U.S. foreign policy. He he comes at it from the perspective of a historian. Uh, and uh, I think that's quite useful as well. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I also think people can, can learn a lot from going back and, and both historically and contemporary terms, l- reading people on, on the left. Uh, people, you know, from like Gore Vidal is like a historical figure, of course, um, who's no longer with us. Uh, but but he offers really good critiques of U.S. foreign policy from someone coming to the left. And I I, I think there's a lot to learn there, at least wrestle with.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely more of a libertarian, but I've learned a lot from left wing critics of war. I like I've liked reading Gore Vidal and Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky on foreign policy. I echo that for sure.
1: Yeah. All those authors. You, actually, that's a great list you just came up with. So.
0: Yeah, Howard Zinn's essay, I think it's called like the Three Just Wars or so, the Three Good Wars or something, where he he goes through and criticizes the the Revolutionary War, world, the Civil War, and World War II, which are the popular wars in American history, was very influential on me. That's a great list. I'm going to include those authors, probably links to their Amazon author pages uh, on the show notes. This episode will come out probably just after this book is released, so I'll be able to include. The link to it in the show notes. It's coming out on uh, December first, right?
1: December eighth, yeah.
0: Oh, December eighth. Okay, the episode might come out just before, but it'll be it'll be nicely timed. Um, we're recording on uh, November twenty first, right now. But do you have any upcoming projects, or are you still reeling from finishing this one?
1: No, no, I have a let's see, I have a short monograph coming out on um, with uh, two co co-authors, Anne Bradley and uh, Abby Hall. Abby Hall is an economist who I've co-authored several books with. She's a former student here at GMU and. A longtime collaborator, and, and and that monograph is on kind of the political economy of terrorism. So everything from applying Austrian economics and public choice insights to understand terrorism to kind of a overview and evaluation, a critical evaluation of of the war on terror. Now that now that you know the war on terror never officially ended, since it was it wasn't a real war. Isn't There's no beginning and end. There's no enemy. It's unclear what it means to defeat terrorism. But it's kind of again with the End of Afghanistan and now the focus on Russia and China in the United States—it's kind of gone. You don't hear as much about it. It's still, the Department of Homeland Security, of course, and everything it does. But we, we in, in that monograph, we um, kind of take a, a kind of re- a retrospective critical view of the of the war on terror and, and um, its success, or we argue its failure to achieve the goals that, that the proponents of it, going back to George W. Bush, say they wanted to accomplish. As well as point out kind of some of the residual that's going to be left over for a long, long time.
0: Is that project out? You said, or it's, it's no, coming it's out it's,
1: it's it's we have we have it's going through the final publication process. It'll be out on uh, in, probably in a couple months with Cambridge University Press, and it will be up on Amazon. And they do these short monographs, which are awesome because they're not full length books, and they they're like twelve to fifteen bucks to access. So they're not like a not like a library academic book that's like seventy five dollars or a hundred dollars. So.
0: Sure. Well, I'm going to bug you to talk about that as well.
1: All right. I'll, I'll send I'll send you a PDF when it's out or a hard copy. Yeah. Where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work? Well, thank you. I, I have a website, um, ccoin. So com. That's my personal website. It has my academic writings, a list of everything I've written, some videos on there um, of, of things like this and podcasts and talks that I've done. Um, and then uh, Amazon has all my books and uh, all my kind of longer works like the one we're talking about today.
0: All that's gonna be included on the show notes as well. My guest today has been Christopher Coyne and his book, once again, is In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire and the Paths to Peace. Chris, thank you for joining me on Ideas Having Sex.
1: Thank you, Chris, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.